Keep that. We're all good to go. Well, welcome tonight. I'd like to welcome those who are watching on live stream. Um, it's good to have everybody uh, on live stream watching. There are a few people that are out sick I, that I'm aware of, and so I'm glad you're able to watch on the live stream. Hello to the, to the Bible study that's here tonight, present. It's good to see everybody tonight. Um, I, again, I was just thinking as I was preparing this afternoon, finishing up some study, how much I look forward to this and look forward to seeing your faces and, and seeing how you're doing and seeing how your week was and, and seeing how your re surgery recovery is doing and how, you know, just, just events of people's lives. And it's just, uh, it's just something warm and uh, I just enjoy it. So it's, it's good to see everybody tonight. I'm glad you're here tonight. Um, we are, uh, we're missing a few people, but I do know that some people are out. And so we can probably talk about that at the end when we, when we do our uh, time of prayer and uh, figure out where, where some people are that I don't know where they are. So where's Karen tonight? Okay, so she's okay. She's not okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so um, and announcements. Let me start with that real quickly, just so I don't lose my train of thought. Uh, just a reminder that every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. on the church property, there's a time of prayer that people are meeting. And if you can't make it to the time of prayer at 9 a.m. tomorrow, you can certainly pray. Pray for the things that we might bring up tonight at the very end in our time of prayer. Uh, pray for just things in general, the new facility and that things go smoothly in the transition. Um, so that's again tomorrow um, morning, a time of prayer, 9 a.m., whether you can be on the property or not. And so um, I talked to Pastor Greg today briefly, and, um, and I, he, had, he had said, I would love to, he said, I miss, this was a while back, but he said, I, I miss the Wednesday night group. And I said, well, come back and teach any time. I'd love you to. And so he was planning on teaching tonight. And, and, and however, he came down with, he said, it was, I think it was maybe even in the pulpit, but the week prior in staff meeting, he said, I, 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 we escaped it. We, every, all the whole family was sick, all the grandchildren and this, and, but Rini and I are fine. And Rini came down with it. And then he's like, well, last man standing, and he got it. So unfortunately, so maybe we'll tap him for some another time, but he, he, he misses this uh, group. And I said, come on back and teach any time. And so, um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's, I don't know where I was going with that. I lost my train of thought, but um, I know that's, keep, keep him lifted up in prayer. Um, so as far as, um, this is so neat. I don't know who did this or who made this these are little it's a did you make this jenny you i you know how i knew do you know how i knew because the post-it note had a prescription on it <laughs> and you're a pharmacist these are back there they're beautiful little handmade i'm assuming heart that her mother made little little hearts i don't think it's so neat and it says take one it said that right for you to take so they're back there if anybody would like one of these things i love this i think it's so neat so we have desserts and snacks and foods and these little beautiful art things. I love this. It's great. It has a scripture on it. Yes, so you got one. Okay, all right. I love that. Are they all the same scriptures? Yeah. That's neat. The scripture is, let me read this. It says, I lead you with cords of kindness with the bands of love from Hosea 11.4. That's really neat. Thanks for bringing those in, Jenny. Appreciate that. Um, well, the only other announcement, it's not really an announcement. It's more of an update. I was out at the church this afternoon um, we just had a walkthrough with a, with just an architect that is just 
we, we've, we're just getting feedback from general people saying, what in the future can we do to expand usage and for, you know, because it's a, there's a big area in the center. And so it was just a meeting, but I ended up just wandering around and nearly all of it on the inside has been painted with its first coat of white. Oh. It's, 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 it's mind boggling how amazing the transformation is. It's just, and I'm so glad we have taken pictures from dark to light, but it's, well, we have pictures all the way along, and it's just incredible. The work that was done, speaking of from dark to light, all the areas where the patio tables are, the outdoor patio tables, the ground, the, the, the concrete has been power washed. Gordon sent me pictures of that. I don't know who did it. I don't know if you're responsible for that, but just, just, and it's, I mean, but it's, it's unbelievable how nice it looks out there. It's just really coming together, so. Yeah, there's some, so just some updates, some wonderful things happening out at the property. So um, anyway, so let's go ahead and, um, and begin with prayer, shall we? Okay. Father God, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for, Father, the property that you have provided for the church, Lord. Uh, we know that's not the church. We are the church, but the property and the building uh, Lord, that you've given to us, Lord, we pray that we can honor you and bring all glory to you in anything we do there. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for tonight that um, as we're gathered here to learn more about your word and, and what it says and, and some of the uh, historical context that we're going to be talking about tonight, Lord, I pray that, you, uh, that your Holy Spirit illuminates the text for us that we can learn to, um, to grow and apply from the things that we receive from you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, as always, um, I like to do a, a review because I would imagine there's some people that might not have been here last week, and 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 it's just it's just a good thing to do. I know Pastor Greg does that sometimes. He'll he'll come into a new section, but he'll 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 bring us back up to speed, and he does that for two reasons. One is that uh, for people that might not have been there the week prior. Number two, it really it really uh, uh, bolsters our train of thought. So that we can come, because, you know, as I talked about last week, this particular uh, book of Hebrews is a continuous letter, as all scriptures are, but it, but it really matters, the flow of this matters, especially in Hebrews. And so we want to come back, we want to back up a little bit so that we can get a running start at the chapter we're coming into. And so let me just sort of do a review, if you will. Um, Basically, we talked about there are three things that we learned in this. In the last passage was verses 13. If you'd like to go ahead and turn there, if you're not already there, Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20, 13 through 20. And what we saw were three things that the author points out that affirm the certainty of God's promise. Three things that, three, in fact, three objective things. These aren't things that are how we feel about things or what we might, someone told us about. These are objective things beyond ourselves that objectively are truths and affirmations and things that, that God has done that actually affirm His promises and how true they are. And so that's important sometimes to have things that are, that are external beyond us because we can all have subjective feelings, but you know when something is objective, you know that it, there's, it's kind of beyond us. You're like, well, this is objectively true. I know that this you know, is something, because a lot of times in today's society, we talk about, there's a term called moral relativism. And that's where it kind of started maybe about 10 years ago, where on college campuses, there was a big push for 
your truth is your truth and you believe what you want to believe. And if you believe that this is a, a cow, then by golly, it's a cow to you. That's fine. And then what that did is it slipped into, if what you think is evil, I think is good, then that's okay. I can, I can do evil in your eyes, but, and I can think it's good or vice versa. Or what we believe is, as, as, as Christians is now sometimes interpreted as bad and we're canceled for those things. And so it's a very important that, um, that the, the, the context of what we're talking about, uh, we have objective truth about it. Things that are beyond us and outside of us that we can anchor ourselves to. And there's a, you know, that anchor analogy. And so these objective truths, these objective things that the author points out to are reasons to hold fast to the promise that God's given us. The first thing that we talked about last week uh, and if you weren't here last week, just write it down, is number one, his unchanging character, his immutability. God doesn't change. He never has. He never will. He is steadfast in, what he, in who he is and what he says. And so based on his character, we know we can trust what he says. When God gives a promise, that should be enough. His character should be enough, that he is immutable, unchangeable. When he says something, he will do it. He means it. The second thing is, he kind of doubled down with, with, uh, with, with Abraham, and he actually knew that Abraham, and knowing that we have doubts as Christians and believers in, in our humanity, he kind of doubled down and gave an oath. That was a secondary thing we saw in the text of God's promise, knowing that man was frail and could doubt God at times or doubt, doubt certain things, he mercifully makes an oath. So that's something that we saw in that text from last week. Um, another assurance that the writer of Hebrews is pointing out to these, to the to the Hebrews, the Jews, to solidify his argument, saying, and, and again, just for context, these were Jews that were tending to drift away, to drift back to the Levitical system, or to drift away completely, or they were not quite convinced. And so he's talking to them, saying. God made a promise, you know that, so that is true. God gave an oath, which is even more so true based on what they knew about oaths. So that's another thing that the writer... The third thing is that God sent His Son as the perfect and final atonement for our sins. He now is our great, gentle, and perfect high priest, which is better than the old covenant. So those are three things that, that point to and... Um, objectively bolster our faith in what the author was talking about in the, in, the, in the true gospel. And so these three things are the arguments. So the takeaway is, do you trust in God's promises? And that might have been a question I posed at the very end last week. And, and I almost felt like I didn't quite, there was more to be said about that. And so I'd like to just touch on that a little bit, talking about God's promises. Because we can go through this book, and, and it's very easy to slip from past and then into present and past into present. And, and in fact, with any book, we go, well, what was the writer saying to the people at the time? It's important what context is. But it's also like, well, how do we apply that as believers now? And we could certainly apply these things because we know that because in the past, God's character is immutable and it's unchangeable, we can trust Him. And we can see that when He made a promise to Abraham... To, to make him the father of many nations, he did it even with an oath as well and a promise. And we saw that that came into fruition. And we also saw from the past that Jesus did send his son 
who was the perfect and final atonement, the better high priest. And so knowing those things affirms us of his promises. And so, which brings me into the New Testament a bit, about, and I'd just like to present some promises to you that God has given us in his word. And when we see and read these things, you should know that these promises are accurate and true because of what we know about God's character objectively. And so let me just give you a few, and if you'd like to turn with me, that would be great. But the first promise is that He will meet your needs. God will meet your needs. That's a promise He's given us. The reference is Luke chapter 12. If you'd like to turn there, go right ahead. I'm going to turn there and read just a little bit of it. So Luke chapter 12, God has promised to meet our needs. If you're struggling and you're not sure if your needs will be met or if you're going to have food on your table next week or you're wondering how to make your house payment or you're wondering if, if you'll be taken care of, well, there's a certain promises that God will give us and if we lean on these. So Luke 12, this is, this is Jesus talking to the disciples. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body and what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, you know, the birds. They, they neither sow nor reap. They don't work. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Sorry, this is 12 verse 22. I started in. I'm in 24 right now. Consider the ravens. Uh, of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of span to his life. And then it continues on down at verse 28. It says, But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And do not seek what you are, what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor to be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you will need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. So what a, what a wonderful, unique promise that God has given us to take care of us. And the analogy he uses is if he, if, if, if he cares for the, the creatures of this world that are simply birds and flowers and, and those things, how much more will he care for you? That's a promise he's given us. And so we can stand on those promises. Um, another one, and we don't have to turn there, but he hears your prayers. The reference is Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Uh, it's talking about your, your prayer. In fact, let me just read that one. And again, you can turn if you want to. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. It's a promise that God's given us. And we know that objectively He, is, this will, be, he will hold fast to this promise. It says, this is verse, sorry, chapter 7, verse 7 of Matthew. It says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? He's, he's making an analogy to a human father. Or ask for a fish, and you'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, Give good things to those who ask Him. It's a promise of provision. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. He, he hears our prayers and our requests. That's a promise. It says to boldly go to Him with our prayers and petitions, and it says He will hear our requests. Now, we're always 
we always want to submit to his will what's best for us. If I go, Lord, I love that new 25-foot pursuit outboard or, you know, motor or boat, you know, and, and that's might be one of my requests, but that's probably not, well, not what the Lord has for me. So it's, and, you know, it's funny. There's, I think it's Psalm 37 that says, um, oh, Psalm 37, 7. Let me look it up. But there's a unique verse there, um, and it talks about our desires. Uh, let me just look it up real quick. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean you're going to get a Maserati tomorrow if you really want one. That means if you delight yourself in the Lord and align yourself with his, with his goodness and with his uh, moral system and with his, uh, when you align yourself with what God wants for you, then he'll give you those things. And those things will be aligned with what he knows is best for you. And so it's not just a, a random, you know, this is sometimes where the prosperity gospel goes wrong. You know, delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, dance around and, and then he'll give you whatever you want. That's not what that means. That means when you align yourself and are stepping in God's will and dire being directed in his paths, the things that you desire are things he will naturally give to you because they align with him. And so um, that's just another one. Hear, hear, hear our prayers and give us what we uh, desire. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5, that's a promise. He'll forgive your sins if you put your trust in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.7. And I'm just kind of going through these, but these are just promises. He'll strengthen and dwell in you. And that's Ephesians 3.16. And another promise is one day he'll bring you to glory. And that's Colossians 3.4. Let me just read that one there. Colossians 3.4. His promise to bring you to glory. It says... Well, let me just start from, from, uh, from, from chapter 3, verse 1. It says, if then you've been raised with Christ, in other words, if we are believers and we trust in Him for all things, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated in the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's a pretty strong promise. Love that. So these are just promises from the New Testament, much of what Christ said, that are, that are things that we should know and objectively trust, that God being immutable, that we know has given an oath and those promises will, become, will come true, and the fact that Christ has been sent, that was fulfilled, those are all things that affirm us and know that when he makes a promise, we can kind of commit to that and, 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 and understand it and trust it. That's the main takeaway. Do you trust in God's promises? So before we begin, I always do a title, mainly for Maureen. <laughs> the title of this teaching tonight, and, and I was very tempted to rip on all the way through seven. The seven is cleanly divided in, a, in an introduction section to Melchizedek, and then doubles down on, on, on the four reasons why the Melchizedekan priesthood, which Christ is in the order of, is better than the Levitical priesthood. And so I'm going to save some of that for next week. But this week I wanted to take the time to slowly work our way into this and see who in the world 
Melchizedek was. So the title, I would say, if I had one, is Melchizedek, a type of Christ. A type of Christ. So Melchizedek, a type of Christ. And now as we get into this, let me just present a story to you, or our narrative. Um, again, the title is Melchizedek, M-E-L-C-H-I, Melchi, and then Zedek, Z-E-D-E-K. Two, two words there that are combined, Melchizedek. Uh, a type of Christ, T-Y-P-E. So, Abraham, during one of the battles, you know, there was a lot of wars that were occurring, and, and during, you know, this is about 2,200 years prior to uh, the, the writing of Hebrews. So, during a certain time period, there was a lot of unrest, and Abraham went out, to rescue Lot, who had been taken in, into captivity by uh, a, a king, uh, a, a group of a, a nation, so to speak. And so I don't want to get into too much detail because it's just a long, long narrative. But just to give you an understanding of what happens here, is Abraham went out, won the battle, God solidified and, and, and made that made him allowed him to, to win. They rescued Lot and they pillaged, not pillaged, that's the wrong word. They took all the goods, all of the uh, the monetary goods, the gold and the treasure, and they they defeated the army, they took they rescued Lot, and they were heading back, and they had all the loot with them in this caravan, and they came to a certain area. And the king of uh, Sodom came out, and this is pre-Sodom and Gomorrah era. The king of Sodom came out and greeted, along the way, greeted uh, Abraham on this journey they were on. And someone else came up to him at the time, and his name, by the name of Melchizedek, okay? So imagine that Abraham and his army are coming back from a victory in God's name, having all the loot they took as well, all the goods, and he stopped, stopped by one king, and then another king comes out, Melchizedek, out of, kind of out of nowhere in a way. And Melchizedek was both a king and a high priest. Very unique. Never occurred in, back then and hadn't occurred until Christ, essentially. And, and so Abraham gives him a tithe of 10%, this Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, in return, not even in return, just did, gave Abraham a blessing. And so I'm just setting the stage of what occurred. And so when we see the scripture, scripture references tonight, this is what we're referring back to. This is how Melchizedek came into the picture. Because a lot of people go, who in the world is Melchizedek? Is it Jesus? Is it, what is it? And there's, a, you know, there's many schools of thought on this, really mainly three, but we're going to talk about that. But I wanted to give you a, a, a historical understanding and context of how Melchizedek came into the picture and exited the picture. Okay, so that's what he, he met with Abraham on the way back from a, uh, a, a war. And Abraham, having all the goods and spoils, he gave, he tithed 10% to this Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek blessed him, which is very unique because Abraham was the father of many nations. He was, he was uh, you know, heralded as one of the greats. And yet you have Melchizedek blessing him. Very interesting. So that's just sort of a backstory. Now, when we talk about Melchizedek, I don't have this written down anywhere, but there's essentially three schools of thought 
as to who Melchizedek was. Melchizedek, some people think, was one of the descendants or sons of Noah. Uh, yeah, uh, now that's just one of the thoughts, or maybe perhaps a, a grandson or something that came from the line of Noah. Another thought of who Melchizedek was is that Melchizedek was actually a Christophany. In other words, uh, there's two things that can occur in the Bible. There's a theophany and a Christophany. A theophany is God appearing in form, like the pillar, uh, uh, the pillar of fire by night and, and the burning bush, and uh, the, when God appeared in a certain way. That's a theophany, theos as in God. A Christophany is Christ, when Christ appeared. Uh, I think it might have been in James, also Paul also referred back to Christ being present uh, during the Egyptian um, exile. Uh, and, and freeing of, the, of the Egypt, and then obviously he was in creation, Christ was. So some people think that Melchizedek is actually Christ uh, appearing in the Old Testament, and there are some schools of thought on that. Um, the third one it, that seems to be more of the scholars believe that I've studied, and that uh, uh, not even just the ones I've studied, but just in general, um, are that, that Melchizedek is a, a type of Christ. So in, in Scripture, I'm going to try to go nice and slowly on this. I see a couple of furrowed eyebrows. So what are you talking about? So in Scripture, we have the Old Testament, which is the Old Covenant, and then we slip into the New Covenant, the New Testament, to testify. And so in the Old Testament, you had a lot of uh, what's called a type, T-Y-P-E. And that type is answered in the New Testament by what's called an antitype, A-N-T-I-T-Y-P-E. So let me give you some examples of a type that we find in the Old Testament and an antitype in the New Testament. One would be Adam. Adam was not perfect. He sinned, and sometimes people refer to Christ as the second, the second and better Adam, the one that fulfilled the original purpose. And so that's a type. Adam was a type. Christ was the antitype in that situation. Um, when Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, and people looked up to it and were saved from the poisonous bites of all the poisonous snakes. That is the type to the antitype of Christ on the cross. So you have the Christ, you have the serpent lifted up on the uh, stake, and then that's the type. And then the antitype was Christ being lifted up on the cross. And so it's a shadow, and then you have the real thing. Uh, another one would be Jonah in the belly of the whale for for a few days. That's the type. The antitype is Christ being in the tomb and then coming out of the tomb. So that's the antitype. Uh, another one would be Christ, the, the sacrificial lamb that was sacrificed all throughout the Levitical priesthood. And then the antitype is Christ. He was the final, he's referred to as the lamb. One more is the bondage in Egypt has often been referred to as a type. In the Old Testament, and the bondage to sin was the antitype to it. And so you have all of these, you have one thing that is described, it could be an event, a person, uh, something that occurred, um, a ceremony that you have in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, it is fulfilled in its truest form, okay? So that's what a type and an antitype is. So it seems that most people think that Melchizedek just giving you a backstory here. 
Sometimes this is almost like a little bit of a detailed history here, but that's just where we are in the passage. So Melchizedek being a type, the shadow of Christ and what Christ was as a high priest. And so just to give you an understanding as we step into this, okay? So um, that was the narrative there that I wanted to go through and the types. I got my post-it notes on that. Just to give you just an understanding and background. So, and yes. There are some, there are some um, Jewish historians that have tied him in in different places, but um, to my knowledge, th that's about it. In the Bible, no, except for in the in Psalms where it talks about him again, and that's a prophetic psalm. So, you know, the question was, was there, are there any other biblical narratives of Melchizedek? Yeah, no, the answer is no, and that's a unique thing. And there's a reason behind that, and we're going to talk about that. So, um, so let's um, let me see what I have here. So let's go on. Let's kind of move forward up until this point. Now you have to understand that up to this point in Jewish history, the Levitical priesthood was the standard for approximately 2,300 years. That's all these people knew was the Levitical priesthood. That was what they did since the origin of it. Yeah, because Abraham's great-grandson was Levi, and that started the Levitical priesthood. That's when it began. And so for all those generations, this is all the people knew. So for context, the Hebrews who he's writing to um, only knew that. The writer of Hebrews is shifting their, the audiences, the Hebrews' uh, paradigm at this point by saying that Christ is better than all of that and he's aligning Christ with the order of Melchizedek. So I would have to assume that every person that was he was writing to knew about Melchizedek, knew of the, the, the information or lack of information about Melchizedek, and understood it. So he's kind of tying this together. Remember, the writer of this is very exegetical in his teaching. He's very, he knows the Old Testament well. And so he's using Melchizedek for a reason. And I think that as we, as we navigate this text, we need to remember the big picture because you can get into a lot of wormholes when you're, you're questioning, well, what about this? And what if he was this? And did he appear here? And like, You have to really re remain in the thought of the whole book and what the writer's doing. He's making a case that Christ is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron and the priesthood. And here's why. So what we're doing, what we do see in this passage is that he first has to start with Melchizedek and describe who he was by going back to the narrative. And he's going to say, Christ is more on the order of Melchizedek, which is better than the order of the Levitical priesthood. And here's why. And so he's, again, he's making a case, but he's building it very slowly. And so the passage we're going to get into tonight is just the very initial beginnings of it. And I just wanted to try to tread really slowly and intentionally and, and because there's a lot of questions sometimes about these things. So that, but just to keep you in an understanding of what's going on in, 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 in the certain time. So in this text, we'll see three arguments. And, and, and just literally, we're only going to make it to, to, chap, to chapter 7, verse 10. So between 620 and, and 710, there are three arguments 
why the priesthood of Melchizedek is better and more perfect and greater than the priesthood of the Levitical system or of Aaron. And that's, that's the, the, main, the main thing he's going by. And again, the writer's just saying, you know, and some of this might be just a little technical and a little bit like redundant in a way. But again, remember, the author's going, I don't know why you're turning back to these things. Christ is better than all these things, and here's why. And he's going back to some stuff that they really know, that, 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 the, that, that the, the, the audience really knows. So we'll see the three arguments. The three arguments are, and this is to prove that, that the priesthood of Melchizedek, he's starting there, is greater than the Levitical priesthood. One, because Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. Okay, and we'll talk about that in more detail. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. The second thing is that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And sometimes as you're writing this out, you can just put M if you want. That's a long thing to write, Melchizedek. But Melchizedek blessed Abraham. The third thing is that the eternal is greater than the mortal. And I'm going to review these one more time. First thing that we see that, that, the, that the author is making an argument about uh, to show that the priesthood of Melchizedek is better than Levitical, and starting with that, is one, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. Two, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. We'll, we'll talk about why that was important. And the third thing is that the eternal is greater than the mortal. So let's go ahead and start. I want to start in, in 6, verse 19 and 20. So let's start here in 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, there's, there's one of the first things there, forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, why does he say that? Forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's look and see, uh, if, you will, if you would, turn to Psalm 110 with me. Psalm 110, 110. We're kind of going to see where that, that came from, what he's talking about there. Psalm one, Psalm one ten. Just turn in there with you. And before we read, we're not we're, we're only read part of this, but Psalm one ten is a it, it's it, it's a prophetic psalm. It's talking about the coming king and the coming high priest. It's a, it's a song, psalm of prophecy. So if you look here, verses 1 through 3 are talking about a king, a ruling king. But if you look here in verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's where this comes from in the text that we just read. After the order of Melchizedek. So it's, this is a prophetic psalm referring to Christ coming, and he's in this psalm, he's saying, the first part said he is going to be a king. The second part says, basically, he will be a high priest. 
And so that's, this is what's happening, and this, this is where it comes from. So if you turn back to Hebrews, this is where we get there, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Like Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek, very closely aligned with the same things that Melchizedek showed. So another thing to look at, so that, that kind of concludes chapter 6. Now remember, he started back up here in 5, look at 5.10. You, I don't think you'll have to turn a page, but if you look up at 5.10 there, maybe you turn a page. 5.9, and being made perfect, talking about Christ, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There it is again. But what did he do? Remember what the author did? He kind of he put a halt to things because he was getting ready to get into something pretty heavy, some, some, some of the meat, so to speak. But he stopped and he says in 6 there, he's like, but, but, but hold on, you guys should be teaching by now, you're still drinking milk. And, and he wants to affirm them. And then he talks about people who have fallen away. And then he goes, but then he goes and he, he says, but you're not one of them. And he continues to bolster them, to build them back up. And now, as we leave six and go into seven, he's back into the meat. He's getting he into, the, into the heavier doctrines, things that they should really grasp on and hold on to, things that are maybe more difficult to understand. But this is what he's doing here in this particular text. So we get into the meat now. So let's go ahead and begin the narrative uh, in seven. It says, for this Melchizedek, talking about Melchizedek, king of Salem, let's pause right there, king of, well, no, let me just read through this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, right? Verse two, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything that they were returning with. He is first by translation of his name, king, which means, well, so the term Melchizedek, king of righteousness, that's what his name means, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, let's just kind of pause right there, and, and he, there's just, he's just sort of introducing by way of just a, here's an introduction, here's Melchizedek, let me just remind you who he was in case you didn't know or didn't remember, which I'm sure they did. So back to verse 1. For this is Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, Salem really is translated to shalom, which means peace. So he was the king of Salem, which eventually became Jerusalem. Okay? So essentially, Melchizedek was a king of what was going to be Jerusalem. Okay? So Salem meaning peace. He was also, so he was, number one, he was a king. Number two, he was a priest of the Most High God. Now, here's where we find the two things that converge there are that he's a king and he's a high priest. No other high priest through all of scriptures was ever a king. So Melchizedek was both a king and a high priest, both. And we know this because of how he is honored. So let's continue through this. And it says, he met Abraham. He came out and met him. Um, what's the, let me just read the reference for you here. You don't have to turn there, but let me just, let me just read, read, the, read the, the, the narrative for you. After his return from, defeat, from the defeat 
of Kerdalamor, and the kings who were with them, the king of Sodom, went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, meaning he blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So th that's the narrative. It's, it's, it's in Genesis chapter, if you write this down, Genesis 14, and that's verses 17 through 20. Yeah, through 20. And it continues to go on, but that's the main part. This is where we see Melchizedek enter the picture in Genesis 14, 17 through 20, and then exit the picture. Okay? That's the narrative. So when it talks about this, he's saying, okay, let's go back to where we were in verse 1 here. Uh, returning from the slaughter and the king and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Um, so, Mel And then it says Melchizedek, or he, is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. He's just describing who this is. This all sounds really familiar, doesn't it? The king of righteousness, right? Um, the king of peace. Um, uh, and that he is also king of Salem, which that is the king of peace. So clearly from this brief description, what we know about Christ from what we understand about the New Testament and Christ's life, this is definitely a type. He is a type. He's, he's aligning in every single way what Christ truly became and what Christ was. So back here in, the, in, the, in, in Genesis, you have this brief encounter with, with Melchizedek, and, and some people say, well, he wasn't really, he was an angel, it wasn't an angel. Uh, could have been a Christophany, we don't really know, but the author seems to think that based on what he's presenting, it sounds more like a type. And there's a reason behind it, uh, behind what he's, what he's, why he's describing this. Let's just continue on here. I don't want to get too bogged down. It says, now this is a part where it could be a bit confusing. It says in verse 3, he is, a, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither a beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, you can read that passage and you go, man, that sure sounds like Jesus to me. I mean, it could. But what the author is saying here, I believe, along with a lot of other scholars, is that he seems to be like Christ. He seems to be, have the same characteristics that Christ has. It sure seems that way. And a lot of people have said that just because he had, he just might not have had recorded genealogy. And, and the important part is that all the Levitical priests, you could see in the Bible where they were born, where they served, and where they died. That was a marker of, Levit of the Levitical priesthood. You knew that. This guy, Melchizedek, didn't have that. And so it begs the question, why not? Why not? And if you look at this passage in the context, that most scholars, scholars seem to agree that he is simply a type that was, there are types all through the Bible, 
a, a, a shadow of what was coming. The reason why that wasn't recorded is because it was simply a type. He was made to look eternal because there was no genealogy. Okay? And so, so it sure appeared that way. Let's continue forward. In verse 4, it says, See how great this man was. Now, here's where, here's where we begin the, the one, two, and three. Uh, the, the three things that show that the order of Melchizedek as a high priest was better than the Levitical priesthood. And that's, that's all the really, the, again, we can, you can maybe believe that it was a Christophany. That's completely fine. There's probably some scriptures that back that up. It might seem that way, that he was actually Christ appearing before he came, he, the incarnation. And that's okay. That's not going to affect the outcome of this. The outcome of this is that the writer is making a case to the Hebrews that the, the Melchizedekian priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. That's all he's doing. We got to stay with, stay with the real point here, okay? So first, we see the first thing that shows this. He says, see how great this man was, verse 4, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave the tenth of the spoils. So why is that a big deal? It's a big deal. Be, well, here, I'll tell you why. Verse 5, and it says, and you can almost put parentheses around verse 5, and those descendants of Levi, of the Levitical priesthood, who received priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these people though, though these also are descended from Abraham. The point being made here is that in the Levitical system it was a commandment that they were to receive tithes because the Levitical priesthood they didn't have jobs or land. They were well they had jobs, excuse me. They didn't they weren't appointed land. The, the Levitical priest, they were supported by the church. 10% was required, and that's just what they did because they didn't own anything. And so the people gave 10%, and that's how they survived, right? Now, the, the interesting thing here is that Abraham, who ironically was the great-grandfather of the Levitical priesthood that started, I know this is really, just bear with me here, he actually gave Melchizedek tithe, which elevates Melchizedek higher than the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. So that's one thing the author's saying. This encounter they had, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, which places Melchizedek higher than even the Levitical priesthood. So point one, why Christ being of the order He's not, he's not quite there yet. He's not with Christ yet. But with Melchizedek, that priesthood being higher is because the tithe was given to Melchizedek. So he is automatically greater than the Levitical priesthood. That's point number one out of that text. And then it just verse 5 talks about what the history of that was. Look at verse 6. But this man who does not have, this man speaking of Melchizedek, does not have descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. He who had the promises is Abraham, right? And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. 
you would have thought that Abraham, being the father of nations and chosen by God and all, would have been the pinnacle. Well, Ab well, because of Melchizedek's higher priesthood and kingship, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, which in this system shows that he was greater. So that's the second thing we see. This, this author is making an argument that, again, Melchizedek is greater than Levitical priesthood. That's the second reason why, because he gave a blessing, and that was a big deal, okay? As we continue on, where were we? Verse 7, it says, it, I love this, the, the way he writes this. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. He doubles down right there and makes a point that it is, there's no question about it, that the inferior, which would have been Abraham, Abram, was blessed by the greater, the superior. And so that's a, just an understanding there. That's, that's point two, that because he received the blessing, Melchizedek was greater. He's just making a case at this point. We haven't even gotten into Christ yet. Yes. No, yeah. The Hebrews, of course, put so much praise and honor to Abraham. Yes. That he had to make a point here. Yes. Yes. He was, well, Christ is greater than Abraham. Yes. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The, the point being that as elevated as Abraham was, for him to tithe to something else and to be blessed by something else shows that whoever this Melchizedek was, was certainly greater. And then he's going to tie him later in the passage to Christ, which is proving the point. He's just hammering that nail home on that. So absolutely correct. Yes, because we know the status of what, who Abraham was, the father of all the nations, you know? Who could give him that blessing? Well, Mel Melchizedek, because he was a king. Who could give that blessing? Ne Abraham, it would be either God or Jesus. Christ, right. And, and hence, she, she makes a, a strong point. Who could actually give a blessing? Well, we do know that kings could give blessings and priests could give blessings. But the point is, is that who could actually do that? Christ, Jesus could do that. God could do that. So were they working through him? Because it does say here, where was it? I think maybe it was in the passage where Melchizedek actually says, blessed be Abraham by God most high. He's blessing him through God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He's talking to him there. Um, so to your point, yeah, I mean, this is where it gets a little, could, could get a little confusing. Was it really Christ? Was it a Christophany? I don't know. There's a mystery to it in a way. But it seems like the writer here is, is, is showing that Melchizedek truly is a type for the sake of argument, you know. So let, let's continue on here. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, that blessing coming from God. Great point there, Ani. Um, and then look at verse 8 here. So we, that's the second thing, the blessing. And verse 8 says, In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. What does that mean? It's interesting because it's talking about Melchizedek, but this is the third argument. And this is the argument of mortality versus eternality. All that the Hebrews knew 
of Melchizedek is what we know from the Bible. That they know that he did not have a, it says that he didn't have a mother and a father, that his genealogy didn't really show up. He was a high priest, but it wasn't recorded like Levitical priests. But one commentator said, there's much to be said about Melchizedek and who he was based on what was said, but more on what was not said. So you have to understand that in, in, the, word, in the Word of God, which is written, all of this is written by the, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we have to sometimes trust that whatever was placed, whatever event occurred with Melchizedek 2,300 years prior to this book being written, and the author referring back to it for a reason, right? You, we have to trust that when it says that Melchizedek was immortal, well, one could think, does that mean he was an angel? Could be a little confusing. Did that mean he was Christ? I, I don't know. I don't know. But, but more than likely, it seems that it was just an inference that because he had no beginning and end, he was immortal. Like he, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't born and he didn't die because there was no record of it or no record of it. And so let me read that again. In the, in the one case, ties are received by mortal men, which would be, that would refer to the Levitical system of the Levites, the high priests, are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it, test, it is testified that he lives because he never showed that he died. And so, again, it could be a, just the way it was written, what we know about it, but I think we can conjure things and think things but if we stick to the line of reasoning and argument, he's making a case as to, we have to remember why he's making a case that Melchizedek is better than the Levitical priesthood. And he's doing it and he's using several things. And he's using the, the literary form that Melchizedek showed no beginning or end. And I think that's the point there, is that nor did Christ, but Christ is better. And let me tell you why. And that, that's kind of coming. And so um, that's, that's the mortal versus eternal thing. There's no record of his death. Um, and then in verse 9, it says, and th this is where it gets kind of sassy in a way, not sassy, but just interesting. It says, one might even say, and he's, imagine the author talking to the Hebrews, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. This is interesting. So what he's saying is here, not only did Abraham, the father of many nations, kind of submit to a greater by giving tithes. In essentially, what he did was all of his, all of the Levitical priesthood that came from Abraham, that was to come from Abraham, actually tithed to Melchizedek. So all, so the generation of Levitical priests that came from Abraham. That's what it's saying here. In a sense, they actually were giving to Melchizedek, which makes him even far greater. The entire line of, 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 of priests that came from Levitical priesthood. Now, I know this is really heavy stuff, but stick with me. I hope, I hope you're, you're coming with me here. It's just hard, but if you kind of go down to the main argument here. So again, one might even say that, I don't know if Paul wrote this. It's too complicated for Paul, I think. So actually, Paul was quite the scholar. And so I'm, I'm becoming a little convinced. I don't know. We'll see. All right. One might even say that Levi himself, the tribe of Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. That's he wasn't even born yet. He was a great grandson of 
of, of, of Abraham. 10, for he was still, there he is, in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Abraham's great-grandson. So the author, the author says, not only was, was Melchizedek great because he was given tithes by Abraham, but in a weird, strange twist, it's even greater because Levi, who began the Levitical priesthood, in a sense was actually tithing to Melchizedek. Point being, Melchizedek, whether he was a Christophany or not, whether he was just a type, truly a type that represented Christ, and we're going to see as we kind of continue through the text here, you'll get more and more convincingly, we think that Christ, this was a type uh, of Christ. So that's the compelling part. So are you following me a little bit? Yes? No? Okay. Okay. So again, yes, Maureen. Yeah. Right. The song that came to my head was Faith of Our Father. Yeah. Living still. The faith of my father and my grandfather and my great grandfather lives in me today. The same faith. Yeah. 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 No, no. Right, right, right. It's it's there. Yeah. So Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right, and that's uh, nor did Levi, but he knew his great. But he knew his great grandfather. He he must have known. Right. 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 Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the I think the major the major takeaway here is that there are certain passages in the scriptures that that might be a little confusing. Like who who really was he? If it said he had no no record of a mother and a father, does that mean he... No, he was human. He simply might not have had his genealogy recorded for a reason only the Holy Spirit knows or God knows, to be a, a shadow or a type. Maybe he was Christ, a Christophany. We don't really know for sure. But it kind of makes some more sense that he was a type because of all of the ways that Melchizedek was greater, Christ is greater. And, and, and there's many ways, and we're going we're gonna to see those. There's an argument laid out in four major arguments in, in, the, in the rest of the passage. And so tonight's, you know, there's really not a whole lot of take-home application. We can refer back to the beginning when I talked about God's promises, that we can stand on those. That's some good stuff to remember this week as we walk our Christian walk. But, but sometimes in, this, in a Bible study, you're actually studying some very interesting things. And tonight we simply studied that the author is getting into the, he's getting pretty deep here. And he's saying, and he's using a, a really interesting reference from the Old Testament. And he's saying, I want to make the ground, I want to put the ground rules down. Here's, here's the foundation before we get into the next part of the text. Because the next part of the text will answer a lot of, will, will make more sense when we, about what we talked about tonight. But he's laying the ground rules at number one, the Mel it says that Christ is in the order of Melchizedek. That means he is like Melchizedek, more aligned with Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is better because of three things. One, there seems to be an eternality to Melchizedek because of the no recorded life or death. Two, he was, well, uh, well, there's actually a, a third one. He is both king and priest. That's actually a fourth one. 
Also, that the tithes were, were given to Melchizedek, which makes him greater, that the whole priesthood of Melchizedek. And the last thing is that the blessing that was given, the blessing that Melchizedek gave. And so, uh, just to narrow, to make it more concise, these Jews, the Hebrews here, were being tempted to go back to the Levitical priesthood. Now, ironically, uh, only a couple years after this book was written, the temple was destroyed, and there was no more animal sacrifice. But there was still a temptation at this point for them to go back to the Levitical priesthood. And the author simply saying, the Melchizedekian priesthood was better, Christ is more aligned with that than the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, we'll see it in the coming, it, it won't, it, it, it's, it's ending, it's mortal. This Melchizedekian type of priesthood that Christ is aligned with is far greater. And, and so that was more, that, that's, the, that's the point the author's trying to make. And so tonight's a little more scholarly in a way. It's a little, it's a little hard to understand in some passages, but if you get the general idea that there was a king and a high priest called Melchizedek, that was a somewhat, it actually occurred in, in, in the passage, in the narrative in Genesis, and he was better than all the Levitical priesthood. And this author is plucking out that passage saying, Christ is more like this. He's in the order of this. And that's why Christ is better. Don't go back to the Levitical priesthood. And so this kind of sets up for next week where we really get into the four major points the author makes as why Christ is greater being aligned with that priesthood than the other. So tonight, again, it was a little bit, little bit heavy, a little bit difficult to navigate at some ports, portions, parts and portions. Um, but it's good. This is good to study these kinds of things and to kind of wrestle through them. Um, and if you have any questions or comments, I'd love to stick around after and answer those things. So let's go ahead and conclude. Father God, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for a perfect and true and better high priest Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, we thank you for who he was, who he is, who he will always be, Father. We thank you that he is seated at the right hand of you, Lord, that he is interceding for us daily, every moment, Father, that he is our true, faithful, gentle high priest, Father, better than anything we could ever turn to, any 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 religion of man that we could ever turn back to, Father. We are thankful for that. We're grateful for that, Lord. We thank you for your word. And we ask that you bring us uh, together safely next week to continue that, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.